The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. Welcome to Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. I'm Connie Teeson. Canada's 15th annual Media Literacy Week is underway, co-sponsored by Media Smarts, Canada's Centre for Digital and Media Literacy, and the Canadian Teachers Federation. This year's event comes as misinformation surrounding COVID-19, the debate over what is fake news, and the distrust of mainstream media reach a fever pitch. On this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, we're joined by Media Smarts Education Director Matthew Johnson, an educator and former writer who shares his thoughts on how to help rebuild trust in legitimate news sources. Distrust of the mainstream media has been on an upward trajectory for some time now, and a lot of that noise is coming from the U.S., especially under the current leadership. But what does your research tell you about Canadians' ability to discern what is fake news? We haven't done research specifically on that topic ourselves, but as I say, we do keep tabs on research that's being done by other people. And the evidence is that um, Canadians are not necessarily any better than people around the world at recognizing misinformation when they see it. Unfortunately, most of the research that's been done is based on self-reporting. So it's limited in that way. What we do know is that trust in media is still higher in Canada than it is in places like the United States. We still do have, I think, more of a sort of a shared consensus about which media outlets are reliable, about... Uh, where to turn for reliable information. But there's certainly evidence that that could change easily. We have seen it change very quickly in other countries. And, uh, you know, I can say anecdotally from what I've seen on social media, that even if we say that a majority of Canadians still do have that consensus view, there's, if not an not increasing number of people who uh, really reject mainstream media as a legitimate source, those people that do are doing so more and more vehemently. What do you think is driving that rejection of mainstream media and also the increased popularity of some of these conspiracies like QAnon, Pizzagate, Deep State, and as of late, COVID-19? I think one of the issues simply is that because for so long there was limited access to um, to media, uh, and particularly limited ability to broadcast media, we didn't necessarily learn or teach people how to recognize what legitimate media was. After all, you know, when you go back ten or fifteen years, you know, it wasn't that hard to tell the difference between the New York Times and the National Enquirer, or the Globe and Mail and the Weekly World News. Um, because we were living in a period of information scarcity when it was expensive to create and distribute media, there were certain standards um, that 
media had to follow. And now there's been a change in that all of that is much easier and cheaper to do. So now it's not that difficult to create a very convincing looking website uh, that looks like a real newspaper or whatever. And most importantly, it's very easy for news stories to spread. And if they're spreading through social media, like Twitter or Facebook, if people aren't in the habit of following a story to its original source, then even if the original source doesn't look that convincing, well, all the sources look exactly the same. A, a Facebook link to the New York Times looks just the same as a Facebook link to the Weekly World News. So partly it is that we never learned to distinguish between legitimate and non-legitimate news sources. And now it is possible for non-legitimate news sources to have just as much reach as legitimate ones. But I think what is also going on is because of that flood of information, um, people are perhaps more inclined than ever to look for patterns in places where there aren't where they aren't necessarily there. One of the ways that we deal with too much information is to try to make it all fit into a pattern so that we don't have to deal with all the details. And so in many cases, the things that we're concerned about are not easy to understand. Uh, they have many different uh, causes. There are many different factors that are influencing them. And in many cases, it's with something like coronavirus, there may not be settled answers yet. And we've certainly seen that over the last six months, where we have seen science happening in real time. We've seen the scientific consensus develop and change. And when those things are happening, it is very easy to turn to a simpler explanation. And the final thing, I think, is, comes more broadly from social change and how that is reflected in other forms of media, particularly entertainment media, that in a lot of cases, when people say they don't trust the media, they're not actually talking really about news media. They're talking about entertainment media uh, because they are seeing entertainment media coming to slowly better reflect the diversity of today's society. They are seeing greater representation of non-white people. They're seeing greater representation of LGBTQ people. And um, they feel that if, you, if those things are threatening to you, if they're threatening to your beliefs, or if they're threatening to your identity, then again, it's very easy to feel as though you are under attack. And we do know that for people who are in... In, who perceive themselves as the majority for people who are in the most advantaged position, they're more likely to see things as a zero-sum game. And so they see an in increased representation of other viewpoints, whether it's in entertainment media or news media, as, uh, as a threat, something that's being taken away from them. So what approach is MediaSmart's taking to combat this? And from a demographic standpoint, where is your focus? Our traditional focus has been on youth, um, and the, the vast majority of our resources are for either the classroom, the kindergarten to grade 12 classroom, or for the home. So we have um, a complete digital literacy curriculum framework 
that has lessons from kindergarten through grade 12, seven different different aspects of digital literacy, uh, which includes finding and verifying information, but also other issues like um, privacy and security, digital help, um, online ethics, which includes issues such as cyberbullying and so on. And we also have broader media literacy lessons that, again, cover kindergarten through grade 12 and help young people understand issues around things like representation of diversity in media, around how the news industry works, and that really, on the long term, is our strategy. It's it's teaching, uh, facilitating the teaching of media literacy and digital literacy. It's advocating to get these in the curriculum and in the classroom. And we're very fortunate here in Canada that media literacy is in the curriculum of every province and territory, but we do know that it being in the curriculum doesn't automatically mean it is in the classroom. And we also know that in many cases that curriculum was written uh, in the 1990s, sometimes even the 1980s, and that in some cases it hasn't kept pace with changes in technology, particularly the networked interactive aspect of digital media that really makes it so fundamentally different from traditional media and raises all of these concerns. In a more narrow way, we have released a number of programs in the last couple of years specifically around verifying online information. And what's new for us is that some of those are for uh, general audiences as well, because we recognize, again, that this is something that people haven't learned. This is something that even for those of us who grew up with media literacy in the curriculum, we probably didn't learn how to do these things. And so there have been a number of projects. Uh, Break the Fake was the first one which we launched last year. It's breakthefake.ca is the website. We also more recently launched a campaign called Check First, uh, Share After, which is at checkthenshare.ca, which is specifically about public health information and obviously coronavirus in particular. And both of these are resources that are aimed at general audiences. They're usable in schools, but also are designed to be uh, relevant to adults of all ages. And these teach really practical skills. So Break the Fake teaches four steps that are designed to generally take no more than a minute or two for verifying what you see online. And we're trying to communicate the idea that this is something that we all have to make a habit of. In the same way that, you know, all of us follow certain habits when we're driving, you know, you check your side mirror, you signal, all of these things that we have to treat reading and sharing information online in the same way. So what can those of us working in media do to move media literacy forward? A lot of our audiences send emails and comments, or you see your own family members reposting some of this stuff on social. And there's pushback from those audiences you know, accusing journalists of either being in on the conspiracy or pushing a particular agenda or even being kept in the dark from, you know, what's happening at the highest levels of your organization. How can those on the front lines of journalism make a convincing argument to rebuild some of that trust? I think one thing that can be done is for journalists and news outlets to 
take steps to educate people about their process. Uh, and there have been some really interesting examples of that uh, that we've seen lately, where when there's a big story, sometimes a news outlet will have um, a sidebar about how the story was done. So if it's a story that, for instance, includes anonymous sources, a sidebar that explains, well, what is, uh, or a confidential source, what is, what does this mean and what are the standards? Um, because if you're not familiar with the news industry, if you're not familiar with what makes legitimate news, you may not understand that there is a difference between an anonymous or confidential source or a source that uh, is not known to the reporter and that there are standards that uh, a legitimate news outlet is not just going to run information from some random person that they don't know that they have taken steps to verify that this the identity of this person and the expertise or the authority of this person. And so helping people to understand how the news industry works, helping people to understand the process that is involved, and particularly as well the correction process, because one of the things that we teach is that legitimate news outlets are fallible like anybody else, and reporters are fallible like anybody else. What distinguishes uh, a legitimate news outlet is that they have a process for trying to make as few errors as possible, and also a process for correcting them. And that really is the biggest difference between um, legitimate news outlets and ones that really just exist to, to push a particular narrative is the corrections. A correction, unfortunately, is often taken as, uh, as a negative sign by audiences, by news audiences. And, you know, if you have a news outlet that is constantly correcting itself, then that might be a bad sign. But in general, corrections are signs that the system is working, that they are committed to being accurate. So that's something that a news outlet can do and that individual journalists can uh, do at a certain level. But when we talk about getting pushback on a personal level, then I think it is the same as what we recommend to almost anyone when they witness, see what they know is misinformation. And that is, there are really three steps you can take. One is simply to question. And this is one of the things that we recommend as your bottom line. This is something that you can also do. But it's also something that you can do when, for instance, communicating with a, a relative or a close friend, you want to avoid conflict, is simply to say, well, where did you get that information? Or why do you think that? Or, you know, what makes you think that's true? And just doing that, there's a lot of good evidence that suggests that just asking that question can have an effect both on the person that you're speaking to, but perhaps more importantly, to other people who are seeing the exchange. Because that's one of the things we have to remember when we're online, is that most of the time these things aren't happening privately. Sometimes it happens through email, but fairly often it's happening through in social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. And the exchange is witnessed by other people. And when we don't push back against misinformation, particularly if we're seen as an authority, that in a way lends it credence. And so questioning is also the strategy that's least likely to cause a backfire effect. So it's least likely either to make the person double down because uh, you're challenging their identity or they're ch you're challenging their their self-image, but it's also least likely to inadvertently spread the misinformation that you're responding to, and that's something we have to be careful about. Another way to do that without spreading it is to simply correct them. So if you have accurate information, simply provide that and provide the source and 
you know, I, there are certainly going to be some people who won't take any source that they disagree with as legitimate. But in general, there are sources that most people will recognize as being authoritative, as being um, neutral. And if you can, if you can show your work, if you can say, actually, this is what was shown. Um, so, you know, if it's something about these conspiracies around child trafficking, if you can say, well, you know, this is the world's, this is the, the largest uh, nonprofit that's fighting child trafficking in the United States, and they say this is completely untrue, then you can, again, either persuade the person you're speaking to or persuade the audience or both. And your final option is to actually debunk it. And that is where you are naming the misinformation, identifying it as misinformation and explaining why it's misinformation. And that can be anything from linking to a fact checker or explaining for you, for yourself why the argument or the source is flawed. And that's generally something you know that you want to do when you don't have a, a, a any kind of emotional bond to the sh original sharer. And when, again, when maybe you're seen as an authority, when you have good reason to think that people are going to be listening to you. We've seen some of the major American news outlets have to resort to those debunking tactics now in the lead up to the American election. Are you concerned about what effect disinformation could have on the upcoming federal election here in Canada? I think we always have to be concerned. I think there are undoubtedly going to be disinformation efforts, and more than that, there will be misinformation spreading. And in the end, from a, from a voter's perspective or from the average person's perspective, whether it's disinformation or simple misinformation, where people are sharing things that they genuinely believe are true but are not, comes down to the same thing. And it is particularly important in a case like an election that we are getting reliable information. And that's a good example of a case as it is with, with public health information where you want to be able to turn to a reliable source. And so, you know, we're fortunate here in Canada that we do have elections officials, election authorities across the country, both at the federal, provincial and territorial levels that uh, do provide good information. And so one of the quickest steps that we can take when there is a clear source of infra reliable information like that is to uh, check with them. And of course, uh, Elections Canada or another elections authority is not going to verify whether or not something is true about a politician, but they will absolutely give you the most reliable information about you know, where your polling place is and the polling hours. And so that is some of the most pernicious misinformation that we saw spreading in the 2016 election in the U.S. You know, speaking specifically to what's been happening in the U.S., where you have disinformation being somewhat ambiguously or unambiguously spread by politicians themselves, what is the media's duty there, do you think? to either report on that at all or debunk it? Does it become sort of an exercise in futility? There isn't a single answer to that. Um, we know that there are always risks when you engage with disinformation in particular, but misinformation as well. You, have, you run the risk of amplifying it. And you also, as I say, you run the risk of leading to people holding it more strongly. So if you're perceived as coming from an ideological position, rightly or wrongly, then debunking something can possibly have the opposite effect of what you intended with people who are 
coming out from the other side of the ideological spectrum. And so I think what news outlets need to do is really judge these on an individual basis. And uh, Claire Wardle uh, at First Draft has developed some really great resources specifically for media to use um, to help make this decision and to do it well if you're doing it. But I think in general, you want to think about well, what is, have it, has it reached a tipping point? Has it reached the point where enough people have already heard about it and it's spreading quickly enough that you're not adding fuel to the fire? And at the same time, you also want to get out ahead of it. One of the most concerning issues are what is called data voids, where when you search for something, the only thing you find is misinformation. So we saw that with the flat earth people for a while there, because for a long time, if you looked up, is the earth flat? <laughs> there, there was no, there was nothing on the internet saying, no, the earth is not flat because nobody had thought that well, maybe we should have some stuff debunking that because it just seemed so obvious. No one's asking this question anymore. And so for a couple of years, all of that, all of the information about that, particularly on certain platforms, if you were looking up that question, you would only get stuff saying that the earth is flat. And it's better now because people have fixed it. But it's the same thing with news that if when a new conspiracy theory f gets floated, a lot of the time, the most important thing to do is to get reliable information up there. And it doesn't have to mention the misinformation, but you want to address it so that someone searching for this story will find accurate information and not the misinformation. Um, and that's, again, that's what we call correcting, where you're not even addressing, you're not even naming the misinformation, you're just giving correct information. And you can do that right away and then take a closer look at the specific claim. And sometimes it's worth replying to, and sometimes it's not. And obviously, if it's coming from someone very high profile, if it's coming from someone who will be believed and listened to by a lot of people, if it's someone from who has a lot of reach, then you're going to hit that tipping point pretty quickly. But at the same time, they may, you know, sometimes there's just so much misinformation that you do have to be strategic about which things to respond to. And you can't lose the forest for the trees, you need to think about, well, of the 20 lies or 20 inaccurate things that were in that speech, which are the ones that are significant enough and likely to be harmful enough or meaningful enough that we need to respond to. Is there a thought you want to close on, Matthew? What I just need to want to say is that this is something that everybody is learning. And I think one of the reasons that it can be daunting for people is, you know, they feel that, you know, they feel maybe embarrassed. It's, it's very easy to feel embarrassed, but almost every one of us has shared something uh, that turned out to be false. And it's important to know that we're more likely to do this with things that we want to believe or that we may mistakenly debunk things that we want to not be true. When anything we have a strong reaction to. We're much less likely to engage with it critically. So we have to remind ourselves, if we want something to be true, if we want something to not be true, that's when we absolutely have to take one of these steps. We have to use a fact checker, find the original source, verify that source, or consult other sources. And these are all the steps that we cover in Break the Fake. Take one of these steps, do it every time, but especially when we have that emotional reaction and 
Don't feel bad if you get fooled sometimes because it happens to absolutely everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Learn more at mediasmarts.ca for Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. I'm Connie Thiessen. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.